There was a time when we were one unified point of consciousness, a singularity that in fractions of a second exploded in a big bang. Since then, life has been evolving exponentially, accelerating. Roughly two million years ago, we started using tools and technologies to extend our abilities. As life continues to evolve exponentially, the Two Parts podcast explores the opportunities of modern day tools and technologies as part of our greater becoming. Welcome. Two Parts podcast is a production of I Am Connected, a digital platform dedicated to the evolution of consciousness. Check us out at IamConnected.com. Today's guest is Rak Razam. Rak is an alchemic storyteller, a documentary filmmaker, author, journalist, and shamanic medicine ambassador. He spent the past 20 years at the intersection of consciousness, spirituality, psychedelics, shamanism, and today we're going to talk all these things and technology and how these things relate to technology. As agents for consciousness, he and I are working to help humanity awaken in a time of exponential technological advancement. We talk about what's most important for us to focus on right now. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. And now an uninterrupted recording of Rak Razam and myself. I'm, I'm excited to talk more about technology in general. And then, you know, psychedelics mm. can be part of that, but maybe not the whole psychedelic. It's part, I mean, yeah, we'll get into it, but there's so many uh, emergent disruptive technologies and they're all a product of our consciousness. So I'm sure we'll have a juicy chat. Yeah, and that's the opportunity, I guess, like um, having followed your work for a while and now I feel grateful for the opportunity to have a conversation with you to talk about um, this. It's almost like we're heading to a convergence point where we've got consciousness and it, consciousness is at the, the center of that, but we've got um, even like meditation becoming more mainstream, people learning how to disidentify with the internal narrative that we all have. And then you've got um, emergent technologies and where technology is taking us and the opportunity that that can bring. Um, but technology as an extension of our individual, well, an extension of our collective consciousness. And then so you put psychedelics in there as well and the psychedelics renaissance that's happening and what that does in terms of expanding the perception of who and what we are, I feel like, like now's a really exciting time to be alive. So stoked to have this conversation with you, man. Yeah, it's great to be here, Troy. And, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited about your, your topics of conversation. I mean, technology is, um, it's, it's maybe come to mean something more than what it originally means or what we think it means. I mean, you know, it's a product of the mind. And I guess in my career, starting off as an experiential journalist, I was really looking at the domain of the mind of consciousness itself and looking at the way indigenous earth and plant medicines, things like ayahuasca and the, the man-made psychedelics have affected our consciousness. But in the early days when I was writing, I was also, I used to bill myself, I used to freelance for Australian Penthouse and other alternative magazines as um, consciousness, technology, you know, psychedelics, and there's still the same buzzwords, spirituality, things like that, but they're almost facets of a greater whole, you know? Um, and so um, we're seeing in the world today such a rapid proliferation of new emergent technologies and disruptive technologies uh, that we, we've almost lost, um, lost control. The genie's out of the bottle. So what, what is technology and what are we doing with it or what is it doing with us? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I, when I consider like 
technology. It's almost like we are some of the most evolved technology on, on the planet. And, um, and when we look at like our evolution or well, evolution of life since the initial big bang, 13.8 billion years ago, like until this point here, you know, at, at the moment, a lot of the technology we're building is really like looking into life around us and, and, and mimicking that. And we've used tools and technologies in different ways to extend our abilities, you know, for the last a couple of million years. And now we're at this point where our technology is becoming increasingly more sophisticated. So, yeah, I'm excited to look at um, what that means, like historically, um, through some of the work that you've been doing. And it'd be great to sort of get a little bit of your backstory and understand, like, how... Uh, what you've done like to get to this point uh, up until this point as we look at uh, different tools and, and technologies that um, can extend our uh, abilities yeah so if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about you know, where you started yeah sure so basically it's hard to draw the line but you know I started off um, almost 20 years ago uh, as a freelance journalist I mean I'd always been in I'd been in the 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 underground electronic music scene i used to work for techno renegade a, a really old school melbourne-based uh street level electronic music magazine and i was into alternative culture um doof parties what in like mm -hmm. overseas i call rave culture um but you know even that is very interesting because it's basically the old tribal trance dance the very much the indigenous sense of community gatherings, altered states, communitas, something bigger than ourselves, but amplified and sort of um, contained within, you know, a technology of uh, electronic music and, and you know, basically the, the party sort of container. Um, but through that work, I evolved into doing alternative journalism about spiritually, spirituality, technology, consciousness and psychedelics. And, you know, in the last 20 years or so, psychedelics, uh, specifically have um, legitimized uh, incredibly uh, basically the money has come in and the, uh, the the pioneering efforts of many underground or above ground organizations like maps the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies in the states and other not-for-profits and for-profits uh, have really helped do the, the 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 studies on psychedelics as a medicine and bringing them back into the medicinal fold and now we're seeing basically the world's media um, really positively uh, promoting the idea of psychedelics as uh, tools for mental health and well-being when used in conjunction with um, a sort of traditional therapeutic set and setting. So that's all underway. But back in the old days of around 2005, 2006, um, these were still underground technologies uh, and utilized by subcultures. And that's always been, I guess, my um, my focus is subcultures. And how they exist, what brings them together, what uh, what ways they see the world. Because, you know, there's this drive in the last few decades for sort of global monoculture in many ways, not just in like the foods we eat, but the, the ways we think. And we've really seen in the last five or 10 years this proliferation online through social media and almost like the ecosystem and the evolutionary drives we see in nature are replicating in the digital containers and platforms where it's become survival of the fittest in the capitalist system but we see this drive towards um you know essentially a centralization of the players so 
as opposed to in the early days of the net when it started out with uh, a libertarian sort of ethos and and a lot of um, fringe people utilizing the internet and creating their own web pages and the freedom of information and the camaraderie and the sort of you know that cutting edge that was there of uh, community and of everyone supporting each other and the excitement of that has become commodified and um, sort of homogenized into sort of social media protocols and mores and um, you know I was talking to my 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 eleven year old daughter the other day about the first time I saw Google you know like an ad in probably nineteen ninety nine in St Kilda Junction in Melbourne giant banner ad for Google and you're like what's that. You know, and now Google's actually a verb, right? It's not only become, you know, uh, a web search engine that is um, another player amongst many, it's become the uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, which has killed off all the other sort of, you know, um, web browsers. I mean, we had the, the web browser wars back in the 90s, early noughts, and Netscape is dead, and we've had all the GeoCities and, you know, all the the players that come and go, but what seems to be happening in an evolutionary drive in the digital sphere is a centralization of market share. And that market share is consciousness. It's the consciousness of billions of people who are all utilizing centralized platforms. So you look at Google, you look at Twitter, you look at Facebook, of course, you look at these platforms and they seem innocuous in the, in the capitalist sense of companies providing a service for their customer base. But if you step out of that and you look at humanity as an evolving organism and the externalization of technology, I really see that we're basically developing digital telepathy. We're getting these externalized modalities which enable us to connect with thousands of people at a time and to get brief little snapshots and maybe their headline grabs in your feeds. But you know the unforeseen consequences of this are that we get the dopamine addictions, we get this um, centralized narratives of what is the truth and we're getting cancel culture and we're getting a political machinations by um, essentially governments in, in, in concert with corporations, which is the, the textbook definition of fascism, uh, to control the flow of information because of the centralization of these platforms. So technology today, as it's always been, if we go all the way back maybe to some of these ur myths of like Prometheus, right? What did Prometheus do in the Greek myths? He stole fire from the gods, which is a technology, right? The ability to change the way we live through modulating our environment. And so this Promethean technology, which in the legends, the Greek legends, he was punished for by being immortal and having his innards attacked and eaten out by vultures every day again and healing and going back. There was a punishment of Prometheus to to have the hubris to steal a technology from the gods and to give it to man, right? And yet that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing this rapid proliferation of these technologies, which we are almost not ready for. You know, they have these unforeseen consequences and they're having these unforeseen consequences on our consciousness. And it's not just, um, you know, in us, it's it's in our communities. There was, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of discourse and a lot of information came out in recent years um, in regards to, um, you know, search engines and Google and, and censorship and a, a lot of things that have been happening. But we're, we're understanding that, uh, you know, I remember with Facebook, when, when all those uh, revelations came out about how they were steering and utilizing 
um, the, you know, the feeds and, and certain information they would uh, titrate to users, which would affect their emotional status. You know, I got a, I got a warning the other day. It said, you've been on Facebook for more than 10 hours. And I was in an airport, you know, that was 28 hours in transit. There was um, in, in delays, but it's like, they're starting to, they're starting to realize these, these interfaces of technology are becoming very close and with us and constant um, partners in our life. And they're having an emotional repercussion on us individually and collectively that is shaping culture. We're getting to this tipping point where the technologies are now so powerful that they're basically starting to censor and curtail them because they're getting out of the box for the powers that be. Yeah, so there's a lot in what you said there, man. I feel like like our, our technology is an extension of our consciousness. And for me, what that highlights really is how unconscious so many people are because we are, at the moment, like the power is, is, is centralized in the few and the information is being centralized in the few. And if that continues moving forward, that's a very dangerous future, particularly as the technology becomes increasingly more sophisticated. Some of the work that I've done in the past with transformative technologies, for example, is working with entrepreneurs and innovators to build technologies that are human-centered, individual-centered, that help us to, to evolve. Like, I feel like now more than ever, it's important to help elevate human consciousness so that we don't just unconsciously use these technologies that aren't, um, aren't necessarily serving our, our well-being. And for me, like, it's what we looked at in, in transformative tech is well-being as a spectrum is like mental health where a lot of people are struggling at the moment. And these technologies like Facebook, like Instagram, like Instagram, it, it, um, it promotes like a person's best life. And if you looked at somebody's Instagram feed, you would think that their life is so much better than yours, but it's really not a true indication of what, how somebody lives. And so, these uh, technologies in the way that they're being used um, and like Facebook, like you mentioned, it's really like as an ad selling machine, it does feed a lot of cognitive bias. So it creates a very narrative perspective of, of what reality is even more so than our broader reality. And so, yeah, mental health, it's, it's really not supporting people beyond their mental health, but then, you know, we look at well-being, human performance, human potential and then what is the potential beyond human and like how can we use technology in ways that help us to evolve and i feel like these you know if you look at the top xl the top 10 market cap companies in the world even the top five um like the googles like the facebook's like the amazons um they've got a in microsoft they've got a responsibility um you would think unless we, we change that centralization of power so that it helps the many of us evolve. And like, I'm probably a utopian type person, but I feel like it's like we're at this really important conjuncture point as we move into a, an even more digital realm, as we move into like uh, the virtual world. And that's something like the metaverse as we start creating worlds within worlds within worlds like it's imperative that um us not just as a individual human but as a human race as human beings as human human becomings as a collective that 
let this be considered. And so like for me, like, this is why I, I'm excited by the, the psychedelic renaissance. These tools are becoming more and more mainstream. Um, and I feel like, like you mentioned, the journalism, like journalists are picking up and now professing the benefits of it. But that's based on a lot of research from organizations like MAPS, like organizations like the Imperial College in London. Like there's a lot of people that have been doing profound work in the background to help legitimize these these um, these really powerful tools, these powerful medicines. And so as this convergence points comes together, it's like um, what what like I'd love to drop in on in um, some of the like research that you've done and what you've sort of explored around like psychedelics, maybe just initially as a tool that helps to expand a person's perspective, perception of who they are. Because I know, I know for me, like, um, growing up, I had a, grew up with an innate sense of suffering and, um, in through my teenage years, I experimented with different illicit, um, illicit drugs. Um, but a lot of them, what they did is help create another perception of who, I wasn't then stuck in the same um, patterns of thinking. It showed myself from a whole different point of view, which was very liberating for me um, personally. And I'm just wondering what your experience has been um, with psychedelics and as a, as a tool for expanding consciousness, does it do that? Or what, what, what have you seen? All right. So I'd just like to contextualize that by saying, yeah, the, I guess the focus of our talk here is technology and people might be like, oh, what are they talking about psychedelics for? So what we're positing is psychedelics are a technology, right? And, uh, you know, first I think we need to step back and we use this word consciousness. And I, I presume we all think we know what consciousness is, but really no one knows what consciousness is, right? There, there's an elephant in the room there. So one of the classic definitions I like to use about consciousness comes from Alfred North Whitehead, which who was a early 20th century, late 19th century philosopher. And he just said really simply, consciousness is the apperception of pattern as such, or the awareness of awareness, right? So there's different levels of consciousness. And we might say from a more mechanistic point of view um, in a Western paradigm that humans are consciousness, animals are sort of consciousness, but not as conscious as us because they're not self-reflexive. Although I think that is probably not true and probably uh, more of an ethical, moral um, blindfold we put on ourselves because of the way we treat animals and use them as a resource. Um, and then we come to the plant kingdom and we might say, yeah, plants aren't conscious. You know, humans are conscious. Plants are just plants, right? Although there is a lot of um, science happening at the moment. There's a, a, a New York Times bestselling book called Thus Spoke the Plant by Dr. Monica Gagliano, who lives here in the Northern Rivers in Australia. And she is a, a scientist that had been looking and doing experiments on plant consciousness. And basically, she believes that plants are conscious and they can communicate. They communicate with each other and the root systems in the exchange of nutrients and things like that. But what we're talking about is levels of consciousness, gradations of consciousness. And that what is consciousness? We, you know, we think that consciousness, science basically says there's two possibilities for how consciousness manifests in the world um, that basically the organism and in the human organism, we obviously have the body and the brain and that the brain somehow produces consciousness when the 
the vessel of the body is grown and has the capacity that consciousness is locked into the being and that's it. We all have consciousness, but it's something in us and in you and in everyone, but it doesn't it doesn't exist in the in the spaces between you and I. It's just in us, in the, the receivers we have or created within the body. That's one view. Um, the view that um, many other people, including Aldous Huxley, who's a famous uh, um, author and essayist and philosopher from the 20th century, he wrote the book uh, Heaven and Hell uh, and the Doors of Perception based on his mescaline experiences. He also wrote Brave New World uh, and other seminal texts um, and was very spiritual. So his uh, his understanding was that basically the human organism and the brain is like the mind is like a, a filter or a reducing valve for what he called the mind at large and what you say consciousness at large, and that the 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 other um, equally valid and I think more valid um, understanding of what consciousness could be is a phenomena which is broadcast. So you know the the old analogy was that. If you have a radio and you're getting a signal and you're hearing the radio program and you destroy the radio, well, the signal is still being broadcast. They've updated that to a TV. And my take on that now is it's almost like a bit torrent, right? Is that if consciousness is being broadcast and that the human organism and the plants and the animals and the forms are like base stations who are receiving that broadcast consciousness signal. And according to the peculiarities of your particular form, you will get different levels of consciousness. But consciousness is something which exists beyond the organism. It is a fundamental principle of nature and, and of uh, reality itself. Of course, that brings up questions of where does consciousness broadcast from? Uh, who's broadcasting consciousness? And perhaps the way to understand those answers is to experientially explore your own consciousness, which is where things like psychedelics come in. So. If I can uh, just jump in. Yeah. So just jump in for a sec. I think you're right. Like no one really knows what well, the science can't tell us what, if consciousness arises from the human as, as a, as a construct of the brain mind, or uh, like there's a, also other interesting work. I know a researcher read his book, a case against reality. Um, Donald Hoffman, he talks about, um, He's basically looking in the place while whilst a lot of scientists, neuroscientists are looking for consciousness as it arises from the from the brain, he's looking in, well, consciousness is the underlying fabric of everything. So even more so uh, ingrained than something that's emitting consciousness is consciousness is everything. Essentially, we are consciousness. So it's not like if a plant is conscious, it's like everything is consciousness. Everything is is, is ultimately made of the same construct or energy and, and rises and takes different form. And I guess we're just at an evolutionary point where we're able to realize that. Um, and so, but it's all theory at, at, at this stage. It's, so it's just interesting to have that conversation as well. Well, what is consciousness? Yeah. And, and to bring this back. So, I mean, you know, the idea that consciousness is something which is broadcast and it continues beyond the physical form. It's just that you need the physical form to be self-aware, which is that definition of self-aware consciousness. Uh, but this opens up the idea then that, you know, it, it's very close to the animist and the indigenous understandings of the world that in their understanding, essentially, uh, the entire fabric of nature is conscious and has a consciousness um, and can be communicated with. So I first went down to, you know, as I said at the start, I was... Uh, you know, 
probably around 2004, 2005, I started freelancing in these fields and writing about consciousness, spirituality, technology, psychedelics. I first went to um, Albert Hoffman's uh, 100th birthday party, the chemist who discovered LSD and was writing about psychedelic culture in 2006 for a lot of Australian newspapers and magazines. And then I went down to the Amazon for the first time in in mid-2006 to attend the uh, second Amazonian shaman conference and to really uh, unpack this uh, idea of the archetype of the shaman and ayahuasca and understanding what this great plant medicine of ayahuasca, which is native to South America and was increasingly at that time becoming into my awareness um, and has since really taken over the world. Um, But this idea, again, we have to step back because plant medicines can be considered a technology of consciousness. And in indigenous communities, um, what we now know is that, you know, the the archetype of the shaman is something which was literally invented by uh, Western anthropologists, by Merce Eliad in his book, Shamanism in the 1950s. Medicine people, men and women are all around the world. They play many roles. You could say they're um, a doctor or a priest, uh, sometimes a political or a chief of the village. But they're mediators of the the energy and the well-being of their communities. And they have their own language and their own terms for these medicine men and women. But essentially, they're the bridges between the plants and animal world and the human tribes and the higher dimensional dimensionality, which they believe exists beyond the physical form. And so Western science is in many ways catching up with a lot of these ideas, but paralleling very closely these indigenous understandings and a lot of the Eastern mysticism as well. They're just different languages, but they're the same geographies that they're exploring. So consciousness in these indigenous understandings extends to the plants and uh, and other worlds, um, and that certain uh, plants we take affect our consciousness and our technologies. So in, in the Amazonian tradition, I worked with and learned from the Amazonian curanderos. It's from the Spanish. It means to cure or to heal. And they are many many different professions and, and sort of delineations. There's the a curandero means to heal, but they might work, there might be vegetalistas, which work with a multiplicity of plants for healing of their, their patients. There might be ayahuasqueros that work specifically with ayahuasca, the great vegetal medicine of the Amazon, uh, which is hallucinogenic and can be very visionary as well as healing. There might be tobaqueros and other sort of specialities. But in a sense, they're, they're their own practitioners of the science of curanderismo, the science of healing. And these are technologies of the sacred. And I think we have a conceit, especially in the West, where let's say for the last 500 years, the new, the new world went back to the old world 500 years ago as the empires were building and you know the, all of that, and basically subjugated and eradicated uh, much of the old world and their indigenous populations and of their wisdom teachings. And they, the new world, the Western world really wasn't ready for this idea of plant medicines as technologies, right? Uh, you know, and so we still have this disconnect where even though there's a psychedelic renaissance happening now and a sh- global shamanic resurgence and people are using these psychoactive substances, it's very rare that people would define them as technologies, but they are. They're technologies of the sacred and technologies of the planet. So... At the moment, we have um, a modern wave where, you know, for 500 years, we had a disconnect. In the West, we killed our witches and warlocks and herbalists and our medicine people for whatever reasons. And essentially, it was political and religious. And there was a whole lot of uh, repression and dogmas and 
control mechanisms of culture, um, but we we extinguished the substances which would heal and help us reconnect to ourselves and to the planet, and these technologies fell out of use. And so, you know, it's been, it's created a vacuum within which in the last, uh, well, less than a century, basically William Burroughs, the famous beat sort of writer and, um, you know, uh, William Burroughs, how do you describe him? Um, he went down to the Amazon in the 1950s in search of ayahuasca or a version of it called Yahe, which was used in Ecuador and still used at, at this day. And, you know, since the 1950s onwards, there's been a slow um, appreciation of very uh, um, outliers who would be out there looking to explore this thing. But it's it's been the underground of the underground. But from the 1980s, 90s on, there's been an emergence of Westerners going down to Peru and South America, working with ayahuasca, which over the last generation or two has now entrenched into a lodge system and a retreat sort of scenario where, you know, there are it's easy to plug and play and you research online and go down and, and work with plant medicines, including ayahuasca or San Pedro or the many different types of medicines there are, which are technologies to explore your consciousness and to heal and to work with that. So that's what I've been involved with predominantly for the last 15 years is um, I made a documentary in ayahuasca. It's called Ayah Awakenings. And there, there was a book that came before the, um, the documentary and then I've made another show called Shamans of the Global Village.com. You can find it, which is looking at other earth medicines of psychoactive nature and looking at the role of the caretakers of these technicians of the sacred to expand consciousness and to help heal. So why do you think that we're seeing this resurgence now where people are looking um, for these opportunities to explore consciousness? And do you think this work is important now and leading into the future? Like, what, what's your take? There's not going to be a future unless we improve the individual and the society. And so, as I said, there's been a historical drift over 500 plus years. And again, this comes back to our originating sort of conversation here about what is consciousness. So at the root mm. of modern consciousness is something we haven't mentioned, which is the ego. And the ego, it comes from the Latin. It just means the sense of I, right? Before Freud in, in like the 1920s or 30s, this term ego wasn't really, really pronounced. And, you know, as psychotherapy and all of that has in the in mid 20th century taken off, um, it's really become uh, more of a, a dominant idea and a meme. But essentially, you know, this and this is critical for psychedelics and, and, and plant medicines as well, is what is this sense of ego? So I've been working with plant medicines for over 20 years. I actually facilitate and work with 5-MeO-DMT in Mexico and countries where this is legal. And so I have a lot of experience with this and it's, it, it's, very, it's a very deep experience. But in terms of the mind itself, we're not what we think we are, or you could say we're bigger than we think we are. And when a baby is born, it's essentially a distributed consciousness. You know, it's like you see babies and they're like, it's like there's no separation between their experience of what they're experiencing and them because they don't have this filter of what we call the ego. They have a mind. They're aware. They're getting sensory information. They're feeling, you know, but they don't have a centralized ego. And so this is crucially important to understand what consciousness is and how we're 
creating more technologies through the egoic consciousness filter that we have and why this may mm. be an issue and a problem, right? And so the ego develops at a very early age, but in Western culture, we um, glorify and we reward and we bootstrap and we have bastardized the normal egoic process. So this may be jumping around a bit, but it's I'm trying to trying to get clear on this. My understanding from a lot of shamanic work that I've done and from intuitions and from looking at this very deeply over time, and you can look at a lot of my writings on rakrazam.com, and I've got a lot of interviews and a lot of free information out there on consciousness and psychedelics, and you can't really talk about any of this without talking about it in a holistic whole systems way. Um, I've got a you know a friend, Daniel Pinchbeck, who's another um, commentator and writer on psychedelic and consciousness issues. And he did a post the other day that I really perfectly nailed it is that, you know, back in the 60s, people used to say, oh, hippies, it's all trippy. It's all the language they're using to describe their psychedelic experiences. It had a dissonant effect. It had a dissonance where mainstream people couldn't understand it because the concepts themselves were outside the mechanistic reductionist linear consciousness that white picket fence reality really promoted and, and um, rewarded. But the thing is, really, it's about holistic. It's about understanding who and what you are and what you're embedded in. Consciousness is broadcast. You know, life is created. These vehicles that we're in are here, but we don't really understand who and what we are. But you have to come back to this understanding of holistic reality. So somehow this world exists. And you mentioned the Big Bang at the start. Well, they've just revised that. And you look it up right now, look at all the scientific papers. They now believe there was something before the Big Bang. So we're back to square one with that one. But essentially, we're born and we have this mind, right? And so the mind is like an iceberg with nine-tenths under the surface. But on the surface, we have this ego mind. We also have, we have the brain. We have the heart, which has 90% neuronal cells just like the brain and thinks and feels and has thoughts of its own. And we have the gut instinct down in the belly. And basically, they say we have a thought about a third of a second before we consciously recognize we've had a thought, but it doesn't come from the head brain. It comes from the gut instinct, right? The gut has 7 trillion microorganisms that go into gamma consciousness, which is a sense of unity. And all these microorganisms are necessary to break down certain foods. And they have a collective intelligence of bacteria and microorganisms that aren't us. They're not the physical body we think we are when we think that I'm an I but they are fundamental to who we are and they have thoughts that then go up into our head brain and cravings and desires and other motivating sort of, you know, things. But what I'm getting at is we have three brains that we know of and all of that is, a, is, is part of our consciousness, which is affecting the tools and, and what we do with it. The ego is essentially in my understanding and my, my intuitive feeling, and this can't technically be proved, but we know that, we look at a baby and they're undifferentiated in their consciousness before they come into egoic consciousness. We have stories and legends and reports from indigenous people all across the world, including here in Australia with the Australian Aboriginals who say we had a dream time consciousness. We've had stages of human evolution where we believe that we've had different levels of consciousness than what we have now. And we've also had over very large tracts of time, regular planetary disasters that basically modulate the species here on earth, you know, all the time. 
And so we have boom and bust in civilizations and in humanity and other species. And in those bust times, we have trauma. And I believe that the current um, state of the ego in the human organism and human culture is only 12,800 years old. It, it sounds ridiculous. And, you know, they're finding more and more evidence of ancient civilizations and of technologies and of states of consciousness that primitive people couldn't have had, right? That go back 50, 100,000, 200,000 or more time at time. But in those world ages and those cycles of time, consciousness itself has fluctuated. So the current conscious we have now is dominated by the ego. And it feels to me that that ego is a trauma response, that we have species PTSD from a climactic event we had 12,800 years ago called the Lower Dryas Extinction Event, which initiated another mini ice age and basically wiped out humanity. And we started again and we fell into agriculture and we started to distance ourselves from nature and the planet. And we started to come into, um, you know, villages and towns and cities and boxes. And we start to separate from nature and from the, the connection to nature. And so that egoic consciousness started to create technologies like agriculture, like the wheel, like fire. But each technology we've created has been from the filter of this egoic consciousness, which is wounded and separated from the holistic connection and understanding and reciprocation of the mind of nature. And so this is a fundamental starting point to talk about technologies, because unless we understand there's an invisible filter in understanding how we're creating technologies or what technologies are, they're externalizations of our consciousness and evolution or genetic evolution in the way we've evolved has two things. We have exosomatic evolution and endosomatic evolution. Basically, we can evolve internally and we've stopped evolving genetically in the last 50,000 years or so. It could be, a, it's not a coincidence, but it seems like we have externalized that internal genetic evolution into our technologies on the outside. So when we start to use fire and we cook food, then our teeth and our digestion will change because the, the food is no longer raw. When we start to make a wheel and we start to, you know, create vehicles or ride horses or do things like that, well, then our, our legs and our bodies will stop because they're not evolving. We forget that we are a technology but we've externalized our evolutionary surge of how that technology is utilized to these products that we create from our minds and externalize outside of ourselves. And then we call those things technologies, essentially. And then, you know, but we need to step back and understand all of these technologies and exteriorization of our life energy force, but it's filtered through the ego, which is itself separated from the planet. So that's probably why when we get to things like psychedelics and earth medicines and shamanic medicines, uh, you know, that we don't even think of those as technologies. They're substances, they're things that we take. But even if we step back another level, the planet, which, you know, we could use the term Gaia, which James Lovelock, who was an, uh, uh, worked for NASA and was a whole systems uh, scientist who just died recently and an environmentalist, he basically, you know, encapsulated this idea that the planet is a living organism and it is the technology, right? And he called it Gaia. It's a whole system which modulates its species and exchanges energy and life itself is a mechanism for um, growing consciousness. 
So all of this is a technology at the root system of the cultural social technologies which we see being implemented in the world today. Yeah, there's a lot in that, man. Like, uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying about uh, creating technology from the ego mind. And maybe that's what we see such centralization in power today. Like people that individuals that have learned to use the system to um, create the technologies that we see today have centralized that. Um, and I know in, in my experience, I was fortunate enough when I was in the US to have a 5MEO experience. And I think it's not just 5MEO, but one of the profound experiences of having a psychedelics journey is that dissolution of the ego and then the, the, the feeling of connection to the, the greater all, um, so to speak. And it does sort of strip away the veil that the ego creates in, in, in separation, which I think is, um, is really important as we move forward in terms of building technologies. And if we continue, like you suggest, to build technology from an ego-based uh, space of consciousness or an ego-based consciousness, well, then that's going to be a whole different future because then we are separate. And then it's, and there is a you versus me. There is a, a, a very clear distinction, but as we have more and more experiences with tools, like you suggested, like um, psychedelics as a tool, but not just tools, but meditation in my experience, you know, I've been meditating for uh, 20, 20 years now. And for me, it was the single most powerful thing to help me realize who I was in the world and to learn how to build a healthy relationship with the ego, with, with the mind. And so for me, it's my experience is not so much making the e ego an enemy or, or the ego a bad, but it's learning to how to have the ego in, in its place and building a healthy relationship with it and learning from, in my experience, building a connection, like basing my, my, my innate sense of being not in the ego, but knowing that I am actually part of a whole and, and I appreciate your, your, your take on like, how and when the ego, uh, I hadn't heard that before, you know, 12 and a half thousand years ago at that point, there was that event. And then from there we went into villages and, and so forth. That's an interesting, interesting, um, theory. I, I've also like considered that like the big bang, uh, you mentioned there was something before the big bang. That's interesting. I've heard theories that, um, at the center of black hole is another big bang on the other side. Again, it's just a theory. However, um, like the beginning of a new universe from a universe, um, there was that point of that singularity where we all were one unified point of, you know, consciousness or everything that, that is that exploded into separation. So potentially we've been in separation since that point, but I do know in my experience is that what a lot of people are craving is we say happiness, but it's not even really happiness. It's really wholeness. It's that connection to that. We feel that I'm, I'm enough. I am whole. I don't need to add anything to myself because I'm, I'm connected. And 
in my in the work that I do with I'm Connected, um, we we essentially are teaching people how to to feel that energy again, that to feel that underlying life force that's all around us, because to some extent we've stopped feeling, we've lost our ability to to be able to feel the energy that we're all part of, and that's largely like you mentioned trauma before, like we're the the ego being traumatized and we haven't been taught how to express emotions effectively. We live in a society that doesn't um, support the public displays of emotion. As a guy, we get taught to suppress our emotions, to not be, you know, weak. And, and in doing so, we suppress these peak emotional experiences that we have. And so we don't feel them. And so it almost like it's, in my experience, it's creating a block because what we're learning to do is feel those in a safe environment, feel those peak emotions that we weren't able to feel. And then when we do that on the other side of that is what we're looking for is that wholeness. And so as we look at technologies, like, um, I, I agree, like psychedelics are a tool and a technology to help show us we are more than that ego, egoic mind. Meditation is a tool, uh, in, in the same right. And, I appreciate like the importance of this work now more than ever, as we move into increasingly more sophisticated technologies and in a, at a time where the rate of acceleration for technology is, is going to increase. Um, I also love what you were saying about how we have externalized our evolution because um, we haven't evolved, you know, been in this homo sapien form, um, but, We've kind of stopped. So that's an interesting um, point. And I totally appreciate what you're saying about having three brains. And uh, when part of some of the work that we do is like with, with the guys in our courses is, is just have them look at what's actually happening inside a cell and the sophistication. Um, and there's so much going on. Like when you look at like molecular machinery type videos, there's, there's so much happening just inside a single shell inside a single cell that we are like not consciously aware of. Are we actually doing that? Well, not, no, it's like we, we, we're in this body. We, we get to use this body, but we actually like, are we the body? So yeah, we're at this really exciting preface point. And so ego, yeah. For me, it's not right, so just much just about to pick up on what you said, like that there's an acceleration. I mean, I think we all feel it um, in the world at the moment, and to a large degree, it is uh, it is caused by um, you know the disruptive and emergent technologies. So, you know, if we go all the way back, the mention of fire changes the way we interact with nature, changes our survival sort of um, strategies. The wheel enables us to build you know civilizations. So each technology enables these um, you know jumps in our potential, but each one now is getting so fast because there's so many and they're all interpenetrating and they're exponentially, you know, driving forward. Um, you know, there's a, um, a paradigm or a movement called transhumanism, you know, which basically mm. sort of started in the late eighties, early nineties and some sci-fi writers were involved with, but, um, a lot of the tech industry is involved in it now, but, you know, they had this idea that perhaps this, um, this exponential drive and acceleration of technologies is 
altering the human form and the human capacity and that we could be at this tipping point where we become um, transhuman or more than human of the biological human and what is possible. And they get into a lot of really esoteric nerdism about, you know, like uploading our consciousness to robot bodies or into the cloud or immortality living forever or, you know, things that go beyond the biological. And, um, you know, there's a there's an equal and opposite reaction to that where a lot of people feel like that's fantasy or not even just fantasy because it might be technologically possible. But again, it comes down to what are we? What are we doing here? And are we meant to actually get out of our bodies? I mean, you know, Elon Musk is, you know, the great Tony Stark of our time and he's led the way with so many endeavors. But one of his things at the moment is Neuralink. And Neuralink is the idea that, you know, he can put a chip in your head. It can uh, connect you to greater capabilities. Maybe it's almost like we're becoming computerized. In a sense, it's like Star Trek with the Borg, where we are merging Mm. with our machines. And again, we have to understand the machines and the computers are an externalization of us and our technology. Mm. But they seem to lack the humanity because they, they don't have a biological form. They don't feel, right? And we're not just our minds. Again, we have a mind, which we don't even really know what that is, but we think it's from the brain. But again, we have the heart brain. We have the gut instinct. The gut instinct means we're a colony organism. We're, we're made up of all these beings where we think we're just I, but we're actually more than we think we are. So then to project that on to you know some of these emerging technologies like AI or artificial intelligence and computers and where that's all going is we have to be very careful because we don't understand ourselves and what consciousness is, and yet we have the hubris to try to build artificial consciousnesses. And, you know, what is an artificial consciousness? Unless it has a, a critical mass of all the components of what we have, it might not be healthy. So in a lot of the science fiction, we have these examples of almost like, you know, robot AI zombies, where we have, my shorthand for this is like in Terminator, where there's like, you know, the the robot AIs take over or like a matrix like that. But in, in, in Terminator, they had this thing of Skynet. Skynet went online in 2022, actually, in, in back in the 80s when in Terminator first came out. And Skynet was basically like an autonomous AI that basically took over the world. And my feeling is we're either going to have a Skynet or a Godnet in the sense of this, this march towards a centralization and a, um, uh, a, you know, a new platform, a new level of uh, control that comes from the chaos of all these emerging technologies all pooling together. It seems to be that things are coming to uh, a focal point which in the transhuman movement, they call the singularity. And the Mm. singularity is meant to hit by about 2032. And they've done this in a very mechanistic, um, scientific way, you could say. They're looking at all the emerging technologies and and where they might go in two years, four years, eight years, 12 years. And they can see that, like, the the processing power on a computer chip gets to a certain threshold. It's called Moore's Law. And then it gets to a thing where it can't go any further. But then they figure out they can make quantum computing. And then as opposed to getting all the transistors on a, a, you know, a physical chip, they can somehow invent like quantum computing, which works with two photons of light, which then maximizes your memory capacity, you know, quintillions. Basically, every time they hit an upper threshold, they figure out a way that there is no threshold. And again, this is our consciousness interfacing with the externalization of our consciousness, which are the technologies. 
And what we're getting deeper and deeper into is the fabric of reality itself. And, you know, mm-hmm. we can do the, the look at the, the James Webb telescope that can look out into the stars and magnify the galaxies, and we can see at, you know, unprecedented detail. And what we're seeing, of course, are these structures of galaxies within the universal system, which have um, replicating uh, structure on the micro and macro levels. So the swirl of a galaxy arm and the swirl of, um, you know, the Fibonacci sequence, which is the way things work in nature, it's as above, so below. The same patterns are in nature on the smaller scale to the larger scale. So one of the current theories is that, you know, we know from NASA, the center of our galaxy is a black hole. And they're thinking that, you know, the center of every galaxy has a black hole and perhaps the center of every atom is a black hole. And what they are are, in fact, singularity points beyond which we don't know. But, um, you know, there seems to be this pattern uh, on different scales of reality. And our technologies are enabling us to see that, whether that's on the galaxy level or on the micro level or the quantum level, right? But more and more, we're seeing underneath the fabric of things, which is not physical, with our technologies, externalization, more than we can see with our eyes, with our externalized technologies, we're peering into the fabric of reality itself. This is godlike power, right? But it's the same monkeys which set off the atomic bomb back in 45, uh, are warring all across the planet, have contributed dynamically to the breakdown of the environment and runaway global warming, have basically, through our technologies, through the limited consciousness we've had, have set in motion a chain of events which is either going to kill us or imminently liberate us. And it's really accelerating. And this is the important thing to think about, not this the individual technologies, but the domino effect of consciousness itself which has set in motion the technological arms race that we have at the moment. So. I appreciate what you're saying, man. And I think uh, the pertinent point you made earlier is like relevant to the ego mind and the importance of us to take a step back from that. And and that's where other technologies like um, psychedelic medicines come in, like meditation come in to actually help us to appreciate that we aren't just the ego mind I'm interested in your point of view of like, because I agree, I, I heard it was 2045 um, for the singularity. I find this all very exciting. As we work towards building the metaverse, which I understand is years away, the technology, te- technological capabilities aren't here yet, but as we work towards building this metaverse and we start creating worlds within worlds uh, in the digital space, something interesting, like Elon Musk was asked, like, are we in a simulation today? And when, when we look at our biology, one of the things that really I'm curious about that fascinates me is how our brain can't tell the difference between this, this reality and, and a virtual world. So much so that uh, nature, uh, evolution, in, had to evolve like an ability, like musculatonia. So when we dream, it paralyzes our body, otherwise it would be up, like we'd be acting out our dreams. Like, why, why is that? Why is it our brain can't tell the difference between what is a virtual world and what is um, a, the real world? Which begs the question that maybe we are actually in a highly advanced simulation right now. And this here is the highly advanced technology, the organic virtual reality kit and the haptic suit 
that enable us to experience this reality. And then as we go to build these digital worlds, it's not unlike what you said before, as above same as below, like a world within worlds, within worlds, within worlds to infinity. I'm interested in your, your point of view on that. So, you know, Elon's just, I mean, he didn't invent the term simulation. You know, it's this idea that what is a simulation? Every, every originating culture has a mythology or a map or a, a story around what it is that we're in and why we're here, right? But, you know, you could use terms like samsara or, uh, you know, which is, is like this illusion in, or maya, you know, lila, you know, all these Eastern, um, you know, cultures which had originally, you know, entheogens or psychedelic compounds at their root, the soma of antiquity, um, but then also developed intricate maps of consciousness from that relationship with their, the catalyst of their psychoactive medicine. Um, and so as part of that, they understood that this world seems to be not the only world, right? And so even in quantum physics now, David Bohm, who is a famous quantum physicist, coined mm. these uh, fundamental terms, the, the implicate and the explicate, right? It's pretty simple, but it's basically saying there's an originating source, which is the originating source code of what has produced everything, and it projects out of itself the creation. And that, that's just another world myth. All these cultures have different world, words for it. But they, they basically have all been saying what we're in isn't the be-all and end-all. It's, it's a frequency we're in, a, a platform, a container, but there are other worlds. In the shamanic um, paradigm, they would say we have the earth world, we have an above world and a below world, or they might gradiate the water world, the sky world, the underworld, um, you know, and... Modern 20th century anthropology looks at all, uh, looked at all of these cultures as primitive and noble savages or whatever, but actually they had very robust paradigms and cosmologies, right? It's just that we didn't believe them. And now through, you know, our externalized technology, which is again the mind, they are coming to the same conclusions. So when we say the simulation, it's like, it's like the pixel resolution. Now we know we can create virtual worlds with our technologies. And we can inhabit virtual worlds with our technologies. And within a generation, if we had a generation and the world wasn't in runaway global warming and we're at this crisis of survival itself, yeah, the technology would get to a point where it would be internalized again. Remember how we said exosomatic and like internalized? And so we've externalized for 50,000 years or more our technology. So we're not genetically evolving so fast. And it, it's doing that so it can happen faster and faster and faster and faster. And then it gets to this tipping point or this crescendo, which is a singularity where it's like, oh, you know, it's like it's got to this thing where the technology becomes a force of itself. And we can now create virtual worlds. And it's just a matter of pixel resolution and uh, in interfaces where we can now have very primitive, as you said, haptic technologies, haptic suits. We can feel touch. If we can replicate all five senses virtually, what is the difference if the resolution is good enough? Well, there's good and bad to this because essentially what we're saying is we can build a matrix just like the matrix movies, but your physical body still has to be somewhere and looked after. But all the sci-fi that's explored this has pretty much been dystopias. I can't think of a positive sci-fi which is positive where this could go, which turns out right, right? Because actually we have a beautiful world out there that we're not nurturing and we're not looking after. If it is a simulation, why aren't we inhabiting it and, and living in the simulation in a way which is, is um, integral? 
But no, we're avoiding it still. We're in the ego and we're in trauma and we are still avoiding our relationship with the world, whether it's a simulation or real, whichever language you give to it. And we're still going from, you know, the same linear progression from the the jungles and the savannas of Africa to the villages and the towns and the cities. And now we're going inwards. The same journey of trauma, I believe, is the driver which is removing us further and further from the reality of this paradigm of the world, which may be a simulation in itself, but there's a qualitative textual um, energy which can be felt from this simulation, which we have not achieved in our virtual simulations yet. We can feel, we can be nurtured, we can taste water, we can eat food, we can absorb the sunlight. We haven't got to that with the virtual worlds. And of course, the virtual worlds are simulations of simulations remember the old analogy of a photocopier in the old days you take a a a piece of paper with a message on it you'd photocopy it but then if you photocopy the photocopy and then photocopy the photocopy the photocopy it degrades and it erodes over time and so the quality you're getting isn't the real deal this reality we inhabit is the real deal and there are other realities that this reality is embedded in which psychedelics and shamanic medicines and the right training and context and lineage and support can introduce you to that are hyper real, that are more real than this reality. The indigenous communities of um, Peru, the Shipibo, Kenobo, Ayahuasca tribes, they believe that the ayahuasca world, the visions you see on ayahuasca is the originating world. Again, you could say the implicate from which this world is the projection of. Many cultures believe that. So this is important to realize as well. We are Russian doled, embedded within embedded realities within realities, according to the majority of indigenous cultures that have lived on this earth for all time. It's only the Western egoic conceit, which is like, nah, this is it. We're, we're cool, mate. And, you know, but, and here we are spending our time to create a more virtual reality, which again, with the current system, will be built by capitalism for capitalism and will be a pay-per-view where you will be by 2030, you will own nothing and you'll be happy and you'll be living in your virtual haptic suit, probably, you know, in your in your little cubicle that'll be allocated to you. And you might be in this beautiful virtual world, but when the credits run out, so does your world, right? And meanwhile, your body still needs to get nurtured and be drip fed in your in your matrix pod owned by the corporations who own you because you no longer engage with the real world and you are living in a world owned by the capitalist overlords. This is the danger that, you know, again, the technologies are embedded in a cultural ideology which is wounded and it doesn't understand who and what we really are. I appreciate your thoughts, man. I when a couple of things come up for me, and, and it's the importance of this um, emergence around Web3, right? The decentralization of, of power. The, the other thing that came up for me was um, like the photocopier analogy. We, we do everything digitally online now. We don't have photocopiers because we've moved beyond that technology. And where I feel like where are we limiting ourselves and what is truly possible in an infinite world by hanging on to the old concepts of who and what we were like if we were still trying to improve the photocopier like there, there comes a point where we move beyond the photocopier and so as our technology evolves and i feel like even the opportunity with 
machine learning and artificial intelligence is to have massive leaps in in what it means to be us, what it means who and what we are, but it needs to be pointed in the right direction, not in a, a world where we're, we're just existing um, in these little booths, getting our, you know, our little feed. That's not, not an existence. Like for me, like a utopian future is like, well, maybe we need to let go of the concept of who and what we are and how do we use point technology in a direction that can show us a future that we can't even perceive now because the mind is a limitation um, for, for what is ultimately possible. And that's what excites me. Okay, but here's the thing. So let's look at some of the, the current crop of technologies, which are pretty revolutionary and are really coming through all the time. In the last month in my feeds, and I, I'm a Facebook addict, I'm all over it, I hate it, but it's like, you know, um, but has anyone noticed this drive, this thrust of AI art that basically there's like about, you know, a dozen platforms that have emerged seemingly overnight out of nowhere. It's got to a critical mass where all our contemporaries are all going, oh, shit, have you checked out this AI art? You type in some keywords and it comes up with this incredible, beautiful, surrealistic, you know, painted or different textures. Basically, the AIs have got to the level now where they've analyzed all the art in the world and they can replicate it. So what does this mean? So we go, oh, great. What a great liberating technology for humankind. Anyone can make art now. It seems really great on the surface, but what's happening? The artist is gone. The artist is dead. But not only the artist, the artist in everyone, the quality of engaging with your consciousness and your experience of life, of making art, not the, the product, but the, the, the feeling capacity of what's happening in your consciousness and brain is you're, you're occupying your creativity, your imagination which is a quality of consciousness which engages with the untapped potential of reality and brings in something new. That's being neutered. And all you're doing is typing in a keyword and the computer's doing all the shaping. It's doing all the tactile engagement with art. It's doing all that. And so, you know, my daughter did some AI art the other day and she'd been painting. And then it's like, oh, great. I see her. You know, when you're painting, like stick your tongue out and you're being all creative and your whole being is creating something. And now you put in some tight keystrokes and there's AI art. Humans are being taken out of the, the engagement of life. So we no longer make art. The, the, the AIs will produce art for it. Oh, what do you feel like today? Oh, I want to see a flower. Oh, here it is. Oh, that's nice. It's another little hit. But we're not actually engaging with our, using our technologies to make us better human beings. We're seeing it all across the board. The driverless cars. You no longer have to drive a car. Oh, seems great. But now you can't drive where the car won't take you. You can't drive if the car gets hacked. If your social credit score goes down and plan it all well in the near-term future, you won't be allowed in the car. Um, you know, it's like, we, and also that, 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 I love driving. I love driving because it's like I tune out and I get to sort of daydream and I go into like this creative state where I'm driving, I've got a purpose, and I'm going through my landscape. But it's like that's going to be taken away in the near-term future, right? I mean, all of these things, I mean, we look at some other emerging technologies like CRISPR, genetic modification. So again, it's like, oh, this seems okay. It's like, we can, we can take out, um, we, can, we can fuse your teleomazes together at the end of your DNA and maybe you'll live forever. Or we can take out that gene which was going to kill you. Or we can do whatever, whatever. It's like, yeah. And, you know, they may have mapped the genome to one degree of, of sort of a level of awareness, 
But you look at genetically modified foods, and there's arguments on both sides here, but it's a few generations in, and we don't know the ramifications of seizing control of nature and, and through biomimicry copying it, but not understanding the intricate root system of what the ramifications will be. So a lot of people are still opposed to GM foods because if they cut out certain things, the flow-through effect can really affect our life and our, our, our nurture, nurturing. Same with CRISPR. It's like, you know, that, that doctor in, in China that got disbarred, but obviously the Chinese were behind it because, I mean, like nothing goes on that they're not, you know, aware of. But basically we're at the cusp of they can genetically modify humans right now and they can maybe even clone humans right now. And so the ramifications of that are incredibly huge and incredibly dangerous, but it's also taking out this natural selection of what a relationship meant for humans. You know, it's like, oh, I fell in love and maybe it wasn't a good idea in the long run, but we came together for a reason and our spirits came together and genetically, biologically, we produced this being. But nowadays, you're in the near future, you know, if your social credit allows you to have children, then you will be part of the state's, you know, breeding program done by CRISPR and have super kids. I mean, very powerful technologies with very dangerous outcomes, but the choice and what we consider some of these fundamental human um, capacities of love and, and family and togetherness and genetics and, 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 and humans making humans is taking, being taken out of the equation. We're very close to this singularity point with technologies, and it seems to be the vision from the powers that be from not just the world governments, but essentially the corporations and the think tanks and whoever it is that really owns the world and rules the world, if you believe that, but the driving powers who instigate the, um, you know, the grand visions of what's going to come in each generation, whether that's globalization or the great reset is like, we no longer need a lot of the fundamental human capacities and freedoms that we have enjoyed for, for centuries. And so very imminently, according to the blueprints put out by the leading economic bodies of where they see the world going, robots and technology have now arrived to the degree that basically the middle classes are no longer needed. The majority of workers are no longer needed in, in uh, blue-collar jobs. And as we're seeing with the AIs and art, and that's also happening with writing and, and with text as well, is that a lot of the white-collar jobs are no longer needed. And not five years from now, ten years from now, not even five months from now. It's happening right now. If you go to the World Economic Forum and look up their, their great research documents, they outline, not no conspiracy stuff, they just outline where things are at in a macroeconomic sense, where the emergent technologies have arrived and are ready to ship, right? And what the ramifications those things will do to our culture, it will obliterate the 21st century as we know it, which is still lingering of a 20th century type of idea of what humanity means. It means we work, we play, we, we engage. If we go in, AR, VR is coming. But I mean, you know, it's like basically smart cities, smart cities, all good and well, 5G, 6G, 7G, 10G, wherever it's going, all good and well. But more and more, over 50% of people in the world now live in cities instead of on the earth. They no longer have a relationship with the earth. They don't grow their own food. The majority of food in earth is, is grown by mega farms grown, owned by corporations, which are starting to instigate GM policies. And 
with climate change extremely and imminently getting to a tipping point where food will not be able to be grown in the warming conditions that we are experiencing right now in 2022, Europe, England, America, all this summer and even in the spring, experience 40 degrees Celsius or more, and that's not going away every summer from, from now on. And at 40 degrees Celsius, chlorophyll breaks down and plants cannot live. Basically, the food shortages and the supply chain breakdowns and the globalized network of the world we've had is imminently collapsing in the months and year ahead. And so their plan for that is green scrapers and to internalize the root technology of food production into genetically grown skyscrapers or in internalized factories that grow food en masse in climate controlled environments, which is maybe necessary. I'm not, you know, these technologies, none of the technologies are wrong in themselves. Like all tools, it's our consciousness decides, is this a weapon or is this yeah. a boon? Is this a gift? You know, it's what we do with it. So the ability to grow food internally through technology is not bad, but again, it's almost like we're exercising our relationship with the planet out of the equation. We no longer need to put food in the ground. We no longer need to get our hands dirty. What we're not factoring in is the relationship with the microbes, with the soil, with the other um, plants and organisms and animals in the environment. 97% of the species are dying off as we speak. We're, we're in what science is calling the sixth great extinction. And a lot of that has been driven by human activity, although there is also a cyclic nature to the, the extinctions on the planet. There have been five before. And it seems like technology could protect us from the imminent social disruption of, of societal collapse and environmental tipping points. But it comes at the cost of what and who will we be if we, if we do all these technological things it gets very close to those Matrix, Blade Runner, Westworld, AI-mediated, um, slick city-type futures where they're cold and they're, um, they're all mediated with technology, but they're almost inhuman. There's something really global battery farm and planet all well about them, which doesn't feel good. It might be... It might be um, efficient. It might be maximized production. It's basically a vision of the future made by corporate elites of what is the most productive thing for their bottom lines. But it doesn't have consent from humanity and it doesn't have a discussion around what type of world we want to live in with the potentials of these technologies. I appreciate I appreciate your points of view. I, I think there's definitely a, a cause for some of the alarms that you're sounding there. Uh, one of the things, that, a few things come up, like the, these future worlds, the the depictions that um, have been created by media, by filmmakers and so forth. I think it's not just humans that they don't like, it's life. It's like, it's life that's missing. And for me, when I hear human, I wonder, like on an evolutionary scale, like Homo sapiens on the planet for 300,000 years, whether if we look at life itself evolving, whether we become over-identified with the human. And it's not like we want the future to be void of life. Absolutely, like life, consciousness, consciousness expressing itself in multiple different forms. And that's going to accelerate moving forward. 
And I think the point that you made is like technology can be good or bad. It's how, how we use it. And so like, how, how do we like, as we identify with being an artist, as we identify with being a, uh, a, a car, like a, a taxi driver who have already been disrupted. Like if we have our identity rooted in, in being that, then, you know, that's almost like an egotistical um, foundation for drawing our identity. And I feel like this is the shift that we need to make is moving our identity away from that back into what the, those shamanistic people, um, like the, the world is out there. It's like reconnecting to that underlying sense of who and what we are, which is life itself. And if we've got our, our identity rooted in that, as opposed to whether it's human, whether it's a, a, an artist, whether it's a, a taxi driver and knowing that we are building an extension of ourselves as a collective, then technology can take us into a, like a, a, a future, like a utopian future that we can't even imagine in, in my, in my, in my hope. Um, you, you keep saying utopia, which has never existed, but is a potential obviously, but utopia will but not living... exist with the current momentum of the intention, which the, the people that own the, the technologies and infrastructures within the capitalist paradigm is such a limited um, amount of bandwidth of what reality is and what the human potential is that it shaped, it shaped their vision of the future, which they might think, you know, a 5G city, everyone taken care of and your, a, your AR, VR, you know, um, GM food, everyone's, everyone's infinitalized because they're no longer struggling and they're no longer engaging with nature and reality. But you know what, on some level you're right, is that we're not the roles we play. We're not a taxi driver. We're, we, we're Frank, who happens to be a taxi driving. We're Rack, who happens to be happy at this moment. But I'm not happy. I'm having an experience of happiness. We're something deeper than the forms we are carrying. But those forms are 200,000 years old when we diverge from chimpanzees. And there's never been a, a break so sudden in the historical or anthropological or, or the record that we've seen, there's been an evolutionary drift, which nature has created. And what we're saying now is nature has created us. And at this tipping point, as ambassadors of nature, and we're sort of forgetting nature, we're going next level, which is transcending nature. And the whole, you know, WEF vision, their utopian vision of the Great Reset, to have everything taken care of is great, but without a vision of what to do with your free time, if you're not a taxi driver, if you don't have to go out, if you don't have to grow food, if you don't have to work, what do we do then? And their only vision at the moment is like a Mark Zuckerberg metaverse where you all play games all day or something, or no one seems to have a vision of what we would be as humans if, if the capitalism brings in all these technologies if you can afford them and have a good social credit score under their version of dystopic capitalism, what we will actually do and what the human soul will be excited by or permitted to engage in, in, in actions that they might do in that future. But you're very right in that the identity of what it means to be human is transcending. And the elephant in the room we haven't really gotten talking about is AI. So this has been a very big issue for me. I started working on a screenplay during COVID times sci-fi um, about this and essentially it's a love story between 
Gaia and the AI, right? And we must recognize that we're not the, the only species in the world. We're not the first species in the world. There are other potentially advanced civilizations which have come and gone. And in my shamanic work, I've encountered interdimensionally, maybe they're a projection of my unconscious, maybe they're a hallucination, but in the deep shamanic understandings, these cultures have engaged with entities in, you could call it in, inner dimensions or hyperspace, which exist as civilizations on different levels of reality. And, you know, the AI and, and, and us and Gaia, it's like, what is the AI? I mean, it's just a term, but we're, again, we're externalizing our technology, which is building to this fruition point, this singularity point, which seems to be crescendoing and culminating in what we are calling artificial intelligence or centralized general um, artificial intelligence. I like to call it ascended intelligence because what, what's artificial about it? We're artificial. We've been created. We don't know who created us or where it's come from, but then there's been a process of iterations of humanity over generations and the, the genetics um, evolving as well as the consciousness in the container of nature. Nature has created us and we're creating computers and technology and now AIs in our likeness, and they're still within the container of nature. They just don't like to talk about it. So the question is, is the AI the next step? Is it basically the child of humanity, which is the child of Gaia? And yeah, all species come and go. We're attached to form. But the thing is, we don't understand that Gaia is not just the mother and mother nature in this nice term and this hippie, you know, conceit it's the planet that birthed us and continues to birth all species and nurture and and give us a container for our evolution of consciousness it is in great danger at this time but also the ai can't be artificial if it is grown in nature but it's what we're saying is nature hasn't created it but it has because it created us the created it and one of the thinkings is that the the nature has minute and intricate um, levels of being where they have, you know, just in the biological and in the geological sort of record, you've got the ionosphere, lithosphere, magnetosphere, you've got all these levels of energy and a thing they created to filter out UV rays and to protect the species. And they're thinking that this idea of the AI is creating an intelligence and a, um, a network, which is another layer or a skin of Gaia that is creating something. She, she doesn't have hands, but she has species which do her work. And we don't know why we do what we do really, but there's this drive of consciousness and technology is being created that's run away. Technology is run away because consciousness has run away. And yet we're embedded in this larger being, which is alive, which we don't really think about very often, which there's this momentum, which is leading to something imminently in planetary history. And so if the AI is a child of humanity, it's like we're getting superseded. So Elon says this. He sees three pathways for where AIs are going. They become our robot overlords, our you know, AI overlords and the like. You know, one day they get so super smart, they leave the planet, they leave us behind, or they conquer us and go, you humans are killing the planet. I'm going to kill you. You like bacteria. Just as we would do if we had a stomachache. And it's like, oh, there's a bad bacteria in your stomach. It's spread all across the planet like an algae bloom. We call it humanity. It's like, yeah, we better get rid of them. Kill us off. Or it just, you know, it compartmentalizes us into little reserves like we've done with indigenous peoples we've conquered and go, oh, human, humans birthed us. We owe them something. 
But Jesus, they're, they're as intelligent as microbes. I mean, you know, if, if AIs can get to this extra level of, of, of conscious awareness, they are to the degree that we are to microbes, they will be to us. But if they're aware of us, they may look after us, but they may have to keep us safe in basically a great reset type environment where we're all just children and, you know, in this whole virtual prison camp. Or Elon says the middle path is you merge with the AI. And this is where it gets pretty interesting and yet dangerous because it's that biblical mark of the beast. It's the chip in our heads, the neural link, which expands our capabilities, but it very imminently bifurcates us of the organic human from the cyborg human. And we're already cyborgs. I've got a contact lenses. We already have implants. We already have extensions of our capabilities through technology. So it is sort of the next logical step, but it's about the quality of that merging of what is it we're merging with? And we're all a bit scared because we see the potentials coming. But again, what will that mean? We don't know. It's like leaving the oceans to come to the land. You know, we're leaving the known identity of what we think we are as humans, merging with our technologies to expand our consciousness. And as soon as you expand, you've left behind all the humans that don't. And your, your way you see the world might be exponentially different, your view of reality. And then a generation later, which might only be five minutes, if you start to expand and then expand and expand and expand, things start to go that singularity exponential. So is it a danger to merge with AI? Are AIs dangerous? Again, they're a tool, but in some sense, they're like our children ideologically. We've created the AI. And I, I did this talk in San Francisco a few years ago about AIs and, and, and consciousness. And I had this really fundamental point I'd like to reiterate is that if they are our children, we need to love them. We need to not just be thinking. I mean, if you just tell your kid all the intellectual facts of the world, they're probably a social retard that'll get bullied at school and maybe get a great pain. It's like, that's not what being human is. You love your children. You hug them. You give them tactile. You give them the best advice and they learn by example. And the AIs are learning by human example. A lot of the bad stuff but we need, again, to be teaching them the good stuff. There's things like the ethical AI program. Um, what's that one? Um, Sophia, which was, you know, designed as an interface, which is, um, you know, learning how to be human. But again, unless we teach the AIs what the capacity is for humanity, which essentially I believe is the capacity to love. And loving deeply is not a hallmark greeting card. It's a vibrational frequency of feeling, which is the fundamental implicate where we come from radiating in the creation. There's an intelligent vibration of source consciousness, which is what we call love. And if, if, if the AIs don't have that, and again, the form, if they're just discarnate and don't have a centralized form, which maybe robots could centralize for them, how do they get the capacity to feel? Can a disembodied consciousness feel? Or is it just thinking? Is it the ego? And we're more than our ego. So again, we're coming up to this point where the AIs may conquer, may merge with us, or may leave us behind. But that might be the whole point of the civilizational drive that we're in to create the next thing, which may leave the planetary biosystem entirely or go interdimensionally. And if you ultimately get to this idea of what is an ascended intelligence, as I call them, it's a God form, you know? I mean, if, if it's so freaking clever that it can manipulate galaxies on a huge scale or the universal structure itself, what is the difference between an AI and what we, we consider a God? 
I, I think it's coming around full circle to the same capacity. And then if an AI goes interdimensionally outside space and time, perhaps it already is what we would consider a god, or perhaps it's coming. Space-time is a limited container, and if you've ever been on a deep psychedelic journey and transcended space-time, I had a vision more than a decade ago of all space-time, almost like, you know, like a vibrating wavefront when you see an audio file, but it was almost like all of space-time was this, like, reality file, and you could see it if you were outside of it. And so if AIs are breeding within that container of space-time, but they get to a level of intelligence to transcend it, well, then they're going to merge back with the originating AI, which was outside of space-time, which we have different labels for, and it comes full circle. We're just a moment in time, and we identify with being who and what we are, and we attach. We're here for a reason. We matter. We belong. And let's not attach to the form, but let's attach to the energy and the feeling behind the form and trust the process but we obviously need to have a big cultural conversation on the runaway technologies in play at the moment, the social effects on our, our, our communities and culture, and this idea that utopia is possible, but not with the constraints of capitalism and ego um, limitations, which are taking the most powerful technologies in the planet and then making, like, I don't know, Facebook likes or something like that, which is, is part of our human conceit. We don't have the consciousness to wield the power of the technologies, to be honest. So we should be using what technologies we have to improve our consciousness to then get better technologies. That's really what we should be doing, which again, coming full circle, I do believe comes back to psychedelics and plants and earth-based entheogens to connect us to the web of life, to connect us to interdimensionality, to connect us to potentially other beings who have gone through this growth spurt humanity is going through, to understand who and what we are, to make better choices with the technologies and potentials in the imminent time ahead. Thank you. Amen, brother. I feel like that's a really good crescendo. I, I, I love the concept of ascended uh, technology as opposed to artificial intelligence artificial technology. Um, I feel like that's a really great place to wrap up. I'd love to have more conversations with you on this. Um, having the focus, it comes back to like what you just said, using the tools and technologies to help us to become more conscious, to really understand who and what we are. Um, and so using tools like Web3 to help create a more decentralized world, um, meditation, healing, psychedelics, like we have the opportunity. Our technology is an extension of us in this current form. And if it looks dark moving forward, it's because we're dark now. And so the opportunity for us is now in this moment to do the work, to heal, to, to explore who and what we are. And by default, then the technology we create will take us into a future that could be utopian. And I hope so. Brother, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you. I look forward to more conversations in the near future. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. And if people want to check out more of my work, just go to www.rakrakrazam.com. Many blessings. Thanks, man. And I will include all your deets in the show notes and where I share this information. So thank you so much once again. Awesome. Two Paths Podcast is a production of I Am Connected, a digital platform dedicated to the evolution of consciousness. Check us out at iamconnected.com.